Hello. Before we get started with the show, we wanted to draw your attention to our crowdfunding page on Patreon. If you've been enjoying Always Take Notes, please do consider supporting us there. It helps us to keep the podcast going. If you support us on Patreon, you can get a great selection of rewards, including a shout out on the show and a selection of successful magazine pitches. If you pledge $10 a month, you get a free two-month trial to Otter worth $26 alongside the other rewards. Otter offers automated transcription and live note-taking for in-person and virtual meetings. I found it to be a huge help when organising interview material. You also get access to a series of mini-episodes with previous guests on the show in which they answer three revealing questions. The latest episode features Leif Arbuthnot, a journalist and novelist. Here's a snippet. It seems to me that the thing that holds people back when they're writing long form is um, a sense of the abject failure of what they've composed. Um, And I think that you've got to put a sort of tin hat on and just push through the sense of failure. A big failure was when my unpublished manuscript... Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode, we speak with novelist and screenwriter William Boyd. We spoke to William about starting out as a novelist while being an academic, about his parallel screenwriting career, and about the experience of writing a James Bond novel. It's a great episode. We hope you enjoy it. Welcome, Will, to Always Take Notes. Thank you so much for your time. I wondered if we could start with uh, when you were bitten by the writing bug. Am I right in thinking that as a teenager, you were interested in becoming an artist? Yes, I, I realised around about the age of 18 or so as I was leaving school and contemplating my adult life, as most people do, that I, I wasn't cut out to do a proper job. That's what was worrying me, nine to five, Monday to Friday. And so I thought, well, I, I'd better become an artist then. I must have seen some artists in movies or novelists in movies um, because I come from a very you know, middle class Scottish professional family. All my my father was a doctor, his brothers were engineers and farmers and so on. So for me to veer off in this strange artistic direction was uh, was very I was an outlier, put it that way. And um but I didn't know what to do. And so I thought, will I be a painter? Will I be a novelist? Uh, the painting route shut down very quickly. And so I, I was always good at Inglit. And so I thought, well, I'll become a novelist. But then I had to discover how you became a novelist. And that took many years uh, or several years anyway. But I, I, I from that age, from about 18, um, I, 19, I thought I must try to see if I can live this kind of you know idealized hypothetical life of a of of an artist writer could you tell us about your first unpublished novel so not not your first novel that was published but um i understand that you had an unpublished novel that was about your year in france between school and university yes actually i have three unpublished novels before my first published novel so i had quite a long apprenticeship of learning how to write novels because in those days, there were no, you know, creative writing courses, let alone a, a manual of how to become a novelist. So you, it was really on the job learning experience. So I wrote this novel while I was at university as an undergraduate in, in Scotland at Glasgow University, which was basically about what you would, might describe as a gap year before the gap years were invented. Um, I'd been at a boarding school in Scotland for nearly 10 years. And I said to my father, I can't go straight to university. I have to have a year off and he said well you can have a year off as long as you do something useful so I went to the University of Nice to do a diploma course and had an academic year in Nice on the south of France which was 
utterly fantastic, totally re-educated myself. And this was the subject of my first novel, which was called Is That All There Is? Um, and it features somebody, you know, incredibly like me doing all the things that I did in the, that extraordinary year I had in Nice, got it out of my system, slammed it into a bottom drawer, and it's never emerged. But um, I had to, it was useful because, you know, if you haven't written something that's 300 pages long, it's, uh, it's a, a very interesting exercise to try and do it. And you realize how you run out of material, how... You, your narrative flags, how you know you, you, you're writing in a bad way, et cetera, et cetera. So it was a very important thing to do. And it explains why my first novel, A Good Man in Africa, published in 1981, 40 years ago, um, this, almost this month, um, <clears throat> was not like your classic first novel, because I'd already written that and, as it were, thrown it away. Um, am I right in thinking that some of the getting it out of your system was in terms of writing about yourself as well? You didn't want to do more autobiographical stuff. Yeah, I think maybe I realised quite early on that, you know, I'm the, the, one of the many binary divisions that exist uh, for novelists is that some are very autobiographical and some are manifestly not. And I'm in that last category. I, I really don't write about myself and I don't write about my circle of friends or the things I've done, of course, I, my life filters into my novels, but I'm not an autobiographical writer. And I think having got rid of my classic, you know, um, uh, Bildungsroman, you know, first novel, uh, and, and binned it, as it were, um, I then embarked on using my imagination and making things up, which is what I've been doing ever since. You know, it's uh, I'm that kind of a, a novelist. I... I, I think of an idea and then I research it and figure it out and, and I use my imagination to to um, produce the finished novel. I'm not thinking about what I am doing or what I have done or who I know or what their lives are like. I'm making it up. You know, it's classic fiction. Could you tell us about your uh, beginnings of an academic career and why you took that path and then how you how you sort of moved out of that? And I should say that I remember... Well, I did English at Oxford, and I remember my tutor, the David Bradshaw, sadly now departed, said that he, I think, overlapped with you when you were at, at Don there, and he, he said all your all your students loved you. That was the. It wasn't clear whether this was in a in a romantic or a or a platonic sense, but he was um he 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 reported very highly on that. But tell us about doing a doing a DPhil and and going that way and then stepping out of that. Well, it was it was a, it was a calculation. I mean, I, I I had written this novel as an undergraduate in Scotland, and I went to Oxford to do a a, a D Phil uh, on on Shelley, in fact. And I had a you know in those days I had a grant for three years, and this was for me. This is when I was going to it was make or break. You know, I was going to test the waters to see if I could become a novelist. Um, but so my my heart wasn't exactly in my PhD. <laughs> thesis it was a it was a means to an end it was a safety net as well because what if everything went wrong what if I couldn't do it I could always become an academic and teach English literature rather than than write it so um, but actually Oxford uh, I went went there in um, 1975 and stayed there for eight years in fact it was a good chunk of my life and it was a very good time to be there and um, it's the first time I met professional writers, and it was the first time I met contemporaries who wanted to be writers as well. I mean, 
at Oxford, uh, I, when I was there, Iris, I met Iris Murdoch, I met Brian Alders, science fiction writer, he was a neighbor of mine. Um, Roel Dahl judged a short story competition that I entered and gave me second prize. And amongst my contemporaries were a lot of uh, interesting writers who are now you know, very well known, like uh, Alan Hollinghurst, Andrew Motion, a lot of poets interesting, Craig Rain, James Fenton, um, uh, Jamie McKendrick. So I really, really, when I went to Oxford, I kind of uh, found myself in a community of like-minded wannabe writers. And um, I knew we, we swapped advice, we swapped experiences and, and slowly but surely, while I was you know, writing this thesis on, on the poetry of Percy Bysshe Shelley, I was actually you know, trying my darndest to get published and get short stories published and, and started a career as a literary journalist. I started reviewing books for the little magazines and the TLS and, 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 and so on, and, and finding out how you could live as a, as a writer. That was, a, that was the learning curve I was on. And it was, it was fascinating and, um, and, you know, it went pretty well, but I, I was a, I, you know, I became a college lecturer. I, I lectured at, Somerville and, and, and Univ and eventually got a proper job at St. Hilda's. Um, I became the, I published a, you know, my first novel in 1981. I stayed on at Oxford for another two or three years because I wasn't, couldn't make enough money to live independently as a writer. And as soon as I could do that, as soon as my fortunes changed, I wrote a film, my first film was made in 1982. Then I thought, well, I can quit academia and you know, launch myself as a as a, a full time freelance writer, and I did. But Oxford was a good place to be for those eight years, as I, you know, learned and found my feet. And uh, you, you you will know, Simon. There's this feeling when you're at Oxford that's the centre of the universe, which in fact is just a small provincial city with a with a university. But you have this feeling that the world is looking on at you. And you know, I, I got an agent, and uh, and slowly but surely began to to make my way. As a as a young writer and have things published and uh, and you know bit by bit uh, that my writing career you know came together. But so Oxford was very important and um, it was a it was a very good place to be you know in my you know early mid twenties as I as I tried to find out how you could become a novelist and actually subsist as a novelist because it's a vocation and a career of course and uh, it's all very well publishing a novel but if you can't pay the rent <laughs> you've still got a terrible problem so um it was it was a, a real education and, and i was and i had a community of friends and acquaintances who for the first time i could share my you know concerns and ideas and plans and dreams at what stage did you get an agent? Because I came across the story of the genesis of A Good Man in Africa, where you'd sent off a short story collection and, and said that there was a, a novel in the works and then they asked to see it and you had to produce it in three months. Did you have an agent at that point or was that sort of afterwards? No, it's funny. I, I, I One of the other unpublished novels I wrote uh, um, at Oxford, in fact, was, was a very experimental novel about the Biafran War, the Nigerian Civil War, which I had lived through as a, as a, as a late teenager. I was in Nigeria in the, in the late 60s and, uh, when the war was underway, and it had a profound effect on me. 
Um, and I wrote this novel called Against the Day. And by then I published a few short stories and I had a kind of mentor figure in this wonderful man called Alan Ross, who had a magazine called London Magazine. And Alan was a poet and a cricket correspondent and a memoirist. And he knew everybody he'd known. He knew Graham Greene, he knew Evelyn Waugh, et cetera, et cetera. And Alan liked this novel I'd, I'd written and, and he sent it to an agent who took me on, but she, she couldn't get it published. Uh, and after a year or so, we decided to call it a day. And so I, my first sort of success, if you like, was I was with this short story collection, which um, I sent on, you know, into the slush pile of two publishing houses, Jonathan Cape and Hamish Hamilton. And I wrote a letter to the managing director of each one saying here, here is a collection of short stories nine of them have been published in various places. So I had kind of proved myself. I said, and by the way, I've written an, a novel featuring a character who appears in two of these short stories. It was a, a drunken, overweight British diplomat called Morgan Leafy. And the managing director of Jonathan Cape, who's Tom Mashler, who recently died, he, he, denied, he denied this to his dying day, never replied to me. But the managing director of Hamish Hamilton, Christopher Sinclair Stevenson, who became my first editor, replied and said, we love the stories, but we'd actually like to publish the novel first. And that's when I told my lie. I said, you know, having said I'd written, <laughs> I realized. You know, and I, I made it. I said, there were the manuscripts in a terrible state. I have to revise it and retype it. And I wrote A Good Man in Africa in a kind of white heat of, you know, dynamism. Uh, <laughs> and uh, it was all there waiting to come out. And, um, and I delivered it to him in, in, I remember this vivid in September of 1979. And he really liked it. He said, I'm not going to publish it until January 1981. So I had a whole year and a bit to wait. You know, I had a novel accepted going to come out but for me 1980 is one of those bad you know black hole years you know it seemed to take ages to pass by um and um you know then a good man and was published and then six months later my short story collection on the yankee station was published so i had two books out in one year um which was amazing and eventually i i confessed to christopher that i had lied to him and that the novel hadn't been written and I'd written it at this incredible you know uh, high speed energetic burst um, and he's forgiven me and uh, but it's it's true I, that's exactly how it happened but uh, in, in those days in those days um, you know to, uh, sort of dating myself that you, you you could publish short stories quite easily there are lots of places where you could publish them the BBC broadcasted five stories a week on a, on a program called Morning Story. Um, and actually a lot of publishers were publishing short story collections in the, in the, in the way they don't really today. So um, I, my, my calculation was that having published nine short stories in various uh, you know, magazines and on the radio and so on, I had a better chance for my first book being a short story collection than a novel. But in fact, because the, everybody wants to publish a novel, not a short story collection, I had to do this kind of, um, you know, uh, sleight of hand, um, fingers crossed behind my back, <laughs> uh, tale of having to revise the novel that I had written, and then but actually writing it from scratch in, in super fast time.
Before we spoke, I, I went uh, back to my, my bookshelf. I was able to find my Good Man in Africa here, which I think is in 19, 1982. Um, and I've, I've got a Yankee station, which is an 85. I was interested in, with, with a good man, in kind of the, the, where the material came from, because, so I, I, as I alluded to when we were emailing, I was a stringer for two years in Sierra Leone for Reuters and, and for The Economist, and it was, it was kind of regarded as a set text by various people there, um, particularly diplomats and so forth. And how much of this was drawn from your experiences, how much is from the imagination? Um, I've seen this seventy thirty figure, but but you know how did where how you know having said you're not an autobiographical writer, where did the material come from, and how did you go about synthesizing it? Well, the the, the setting is absolutely autobiographical in the sense that it is, you know, if you if you know Ibadan, Western Nigeria, um, which is a city that I lived in, and my parents, my father worked as a doctor in the in the University of Ibadan. Um, that it, the setting is absolutely authentic. And in fact, my father, who died shortly before I wrote the novel, appears as Dr. Murray. It was kind of my homage to him as a sort of two-dimensional portrait of him as a man. But um, so the, the, the setting and, the, and the, the, the mood, the ambience is absolutely something I knew inside out because I, you know, born and raised in West Africa. But the story is entirely imaginary, and all the other characters, the diplomats, Adekunle, the corrupt uh, politician, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, Friday, and so on, are, are all creatures of my imagination. And um, it's uh, so that, in a way, that sets the pattern for all my subsequent novels, in the sense that the the, the background is sometimes something I'm familiar with. Um, but I, I do make it up, you know, it's, it's um, old fashioned novel writing in a way. And um, uh, the, there are a few, my, I remember my mother, when she read the novel, got slightly worried that some local figures might identify themselves, um, but nobody did. Uh, and um, it, the only person that's a portrait is, is this character of Dr. Murray. I mean, Morgan Leafy is a, again, a figment of my imagination. And he, it, I invented him because my father, being the doctor, saw everybody in that university. And there were 40,000 people, you know, who um, he looked after in a series of six clinics. And he had a strange friendship with a slightly loose, you know, um, drunken lecturer in English, uh, an Englishman. And the sort of person my father, being a rather strict disapproving Scott would not have hung out with at all. But I used to see them chatting and laughing away. And I think that I thought, how come, you know, Dr. Boyd is enjoying the company of this rather dissolute figure. And I think that's where I got the idea of these two characters, you know, kind of a moral rock and this very amoral um, shifting uh dubious character and how they the two of them in, encounter each other but so many ideas spring from you know just a, 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 the the slightest kind of uh, inspiration but it, there's no sense in which Morgan Leafy is based on any living being but of course he's he comes alive in the novel and his relationship with Dr. Murray is a kind of imaginary relationship of of two totally different people having to kind of um, deal with each other. So it's, um, it's, 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 you know, it's not, I would say, yeah, 70% imagined, 30% 
the real place, but it's more, it's more Nigeria. I changed the names. I call the country Kinjanja and the town Nkong Samba. But anybody who knows West Africa, as, as you do, you would, you'd recognize, you get an extra frisson from it. I was wondering about the figure of three months for that book and three years, which is what you spend on books now. Was it that the research process was necessarily truncated for this book or was it that it was a sort of, as you said, it was bursting to come out. So it kind of was an expedited process. Yeah, I think it was. I mean, I look back at my younger self um, when I was living in Oxford in the in the early 80s and um, I was a I wish I could tap into those energies now. I mean, I, I was writing this uh, DPhil thesis. I was uh, writing stories and um, a novel. Uh, I was writing a TV column for the New Statesman um, I, and writing reviews and teaching as well. I was teaching English literature to the, the undergraduates of St. Hilda's College and sometimes teaching English as a foreign language to... Um, um, you know, foreign students who'd come to Oxford to to learn to speak English. So, uh, I you know, I think I think when you're that age, I was in my late twenties. I had you know boundless energy, and while I was waiting for a good man in Africa to be published in in 1980, I wrote a huge chunk of my second novel, An Ice Cream War, at the same time as doing all these other things. So, An Ice Cream War, which was published in I think you know September 1982 um, was had been delivered in you know January 1982. So I I um, I could write for five or six hours a day. And um, the wonderful thing about having a you know that sort of Oxford life was I had masses of time to to do my own writing and. Um, and I've, there's no doubt I've slowed down. I can manage two to three hours a day now, but back then I could, I could, I could do a, a full, you know, nine to five writing fiction, no problem. So I think it's just your own energies and your own enthusiasms that, that fire you up at that stage. And um, uh, so by, you know, by September, 1982, I had published, you know, two novels and, and a book of short stories and written a film so and done all this other stuff so I, I look back at my younger self you know and sort of you know kudos to you you know it's uh it's, it was an extraordinary kind of period and everything was going well and everything was working out for me after the years of you know neglect and trying and um you know it, it just I, I could I could just right away merrily you know it was um and you know and well you know not just churning out boilerplate you know um so it was um i think it was it, it's it's a reflection on my youth and my ambition and you know this the circumstances i found myself in could we talk about your your method and your routine as as you do things now and particularly the idea of of plotting out novels in advance so with every fiction writer we have on the show we've asked them this idea as to whether the the narrative exists on the wall in post-it notes or in whatever form before they start or whether they dive in. And, and we've had completely different answers from people who take totally distinct approaches from having everything planned to to really just just jumping in this this plotter versus plunger idea. How do you how do you walk the line with that? I've seen in interviews that you do create a skeleton and then follow that. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, chacun a sa méthode. You know, it's uh, it doesn't work for everybody, but the method I have, and I've I've employed it, you know, since a good man in Africa, is to spend maybe twice as long figuring out, researching, pondering the novel, taking note, making notes, making rough plans, rough schematic plans of the novel. Um, buying books that will be helpful, maybe traveling if required. I often use photographs as a research tool. And this period, I mean, I borrowed the terms from Iris Murdoch, in fact, she came up with these, I think she wrote in the same way. She talked about there's a period of inspiration and then a period of, con uh, of composition. And uh, that very much applies to me. And the sort of two years of inspiration, one year of composition, roughly speaking, though I'm, I am speeding up a bit as I get older. Um, and it, it works for me, it's not for everybody. I mean, I have a great friend who's an extremely well-known uh, novelist who comes up with an incident and then spirals out, as it were, from that incident to create his novel. And there are other novelists who you just start and wait for, wait for the muse to descend on a daily basis, but I, I think that's highly risky. And I think that's how novels get abandoned. You know, the, the 40 page novel, the 100 page novel, again, bottom drawered somewhere. And so I, I have never abandoned a novel precisely because of my method. I have, I have figured the whole thing out. I know I won't start writing it until I know exactly how it ends, almost to being able to write the last paragraph of the final page. And then I write with confidence, not particularly quickly, but with confidence, because I have the whole scheme of the novel uh, written down in front of me. So if I'm, you know, feeling not like writing in the middle of chapter 13, I can just look at the notes for chapter 13. I know exactly what I have to write. And I, you know, I, I spur myself on. I'm not waiting to think what happens next. And so um, it's it's not it, it isn't a method that works for every novelist, but it certainly works for me. That's how I, I plan screenplays. I plan short stories in the same way. I figure it out, get the ending right. That's my general piece of advice. I give it to all young writers. You know, say I've got this brilliant idea for a novel, I, and they tell me about it. And I say, well, how does it end? And they say, well, I haven't quite figured that out yet. And I say, well, don't start until you've figured it out, and you can work back. From, from your ending. And a good ending will save a mediocre novel and a bad ending will sink a good novel. So I think um, you know, it's, that there's a certain amount of, of good advice to be taken from my method, but it's not for everyone. And, and people don't like to know exactly the destination of their journey when they set out, but I do. In terms of um, those two years that you spend on research, um, what are you doing um, with the, with that time, I read somewhere that you uh, read novels that are written at the time that you're setting your book in. Yes, I mean that, that's a very good research tip, actually, um, because um, the throwaway details in a you know say a, a Georgian a, a novel set before the First World War. Um, will provide you, who's writing a, a new novel set before the First World War, with all sorts of inadvertent, authentic details. Um, I use I use street maps. I use photographs a lot, 
But in that period of invention, I also have my other life, which is as a, as a screenwriter and writing films and writing television. So you know, half my brain is occupied with the research for the novel I'm going to write. And half my brain is occupied with these various film and TV projects or, 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 or plays. I've started writing plays as well now. So I, I'm kind of multifaceted. I, multifaceted. I still write a lot of literary journalism um, and and general journalism as well. So I'm, you know, I'm. I think it's a very British tradition. You know, you're a writer. So what do you do every day? You write something. You know, whether it's a a novel or a or a or a review or your journal or um, um, a screenplay or a radio play or whatever. So um, I'm constantly busy, or I've made sure that I'm constantly busy. So while I'm researching. And, and you know, accumulating this library of books that will serve my novel, um, and thinking about the novel I'm going to write. I, I am also busy on other things as well. Um, so it's a, it's um, it, there's no sense in which it's a kind of um, a single-minded endeavor. I, I have um, I compartmentalize a lot, and I do all these other things. Um, as well as as well as plot my next novel. I mean, as we are talking here today, um, I am planning at the moment the novel I'm going to write next. I'll probably start it in July, I think, or June, July, um, and it'll be delivered in early next year. Um, but I've got masses of other things going on. But I'm I am you know, compartmentalizing away furiously. In terms of those contemporaneous sources, I think I read somewhere that you, you particularly talked about Frederick Manning for the First World War, is that right? Um, the Middle Parts of Fortune, so forth, as, as the one First World War novel that actually has swearing in. Could you tell us a bit about that? I mean, it's very interesting because, um, uh, you know, I, I wrote and directed a film, uh, a, a sort of art house war movie called The Trench, um, in uh, which came out in 1999. And um, uh, I've so, I'm sort of obsessed by the First World War, as, as many British people are. My, my grandfather survived uh, the Third Battle of Ypres. His brother, my great uncle, survived the Battle of the Somme and got a medal. So it's part of family legend in a way, I suppose. And I've always been very interested in, in the First World War. Um, and of course, most people go to the poetry for um, their kind of, to access what the experience was like. And the extraordinary thing about Frederick Manning's novel was that he wrote two versions. One is uh, unexpurgated and the other is expurgated. And um, the, uh, if you read the unexpurgated version, which you can now, I've written an introduction to it, in fact, it's, it's published. Um, it's the most, I think it's the best novel to come out of the First World War in English. Um, and there are not many, but there are a few, but uh, it's, and it's extraordinarily realistic and extraordinarily bleak. And the thing that Manning did uh, was to rec record soldiers' speech as they spoke it, uh, and the expression swearing like troopers you know, doesn't come from nowhere. And he uses every four letter word available. And so it, it kind of strips veils away about the First World War, the Tommy in the trenches, you know, um, et cetera. And you realize they are like soldiers throughout time. They're 
they're they're bitter, they're miserable, they want to be warm and dry, and if we can get any uh, you know tobacco or alcohol, so much the better. And it's a it's a very very true story of World War One, and it was a kind of inspiration for my film, which I also said to the the actors who. They were all unknown when I cast them. They're now all incredibly famous. But I said to them, if you want to swear, use a, if you want to use a four-letter word, just do it, just stick it in. I didn't write it in the script. So they're all, they all swore like troopers throughout the film. But it's totally authentic because that's what, what it was like. And so, um, you know, without Manning's novel, uh, and he was at the Battle of the Somme, um, we wouldn't be able, I think, to prove that, you know, um, British soldiers said fuck a lot, <laughs> you know, um, but they but they did, uh, thanks to Frederick Manning. So it's a, it's a wonderful source text for the reality of trench warfare. Message from our sponsor, Vitsu. Martyr's story. If only each shelf could talk, reflected Marta, a Vitsu customer since 2004. Her shelving system began modestly and has grown over the years. It travelled with her from London to Valencia and now Amsterdam. This is the fifth time Marta has bought from Vitsu. Every time she speaks with her personal Vitsu planner, Robin, who reorganised her bookshelves to fit her Spanish walls and her Dutch hoose. He even sent her extra packaging to protect her shelves with each move. You might say that their relationship has become a friendship over the years. Marta knows she is valued and trusts the advice Robin gives. If your shelves could talk, what would they say? Vitsu's 606 Universal Shelving System is a modular, adaptable kit of parts. It can form the perfect home for your books and even the desk from which to write one. Visit vitsu.com, V-I-T-S-O-E.com or request a free brochure via email at vitsu.com by quoting ATN 606. Vitsu, makers of long living furniture by Dieter Rams. In terms of working for the screen or writing for the screen, um, could you tell us a little bit about how your process differs for those two different mediums? I saw that you've described one as writing novels as swimming in the ocean and writing screenplays as swimming in the bath. <laughs> Exactly. Um, it's, I mean, I, uh, you know, I, doing both is, is, a, is a revelation because you realize that the novel is the most liberated, generous, free art form available. You can do absolutely anything. You know, you can spend 500 pages writing about 10 minutes in somebody's life if you want. Um, but you move to film. Uh, and I've banged on about this a lot. You move to film, you move to a totally different world. It, it, the, the two art forms are, are you know, very kind of spuriously related. They're both narratives, but that's just about where it ends because film is photography. And this is, that may sound very banal, but there's basically in any film, and I include television, you know, anything that's made with a camera is, is, ruthlessly objective your everything is seen through a lens and you the viewer are uh, the audience are on the outside looking on and so subjectivity in film becomes incredibly difficult to achieve and the tools you have at your disposal are very crude and very simple 
film is a much simpler art form than the novel. And I don't mean that in a derogatory way, it just it, you know, it, it just cannot do what the novel can do. Um, it has its strengths, of course, but it's not uh, remotely close to the, the freedoms that the novel offers, hence my sea and bath comparison. Um, and so what you do when you move to the world, or what I do when I move to the world of, of, of film or television is to take all that on board, to take the industrial um, necessities and industrial constraints on board and try to write something that will work well as a film. It has no relationship to the, the book it's adapted from or the life story it's adapted from. How will this work best as a film? And once you, as it were, confine yourself uh, within those parameters that the art form permits, then you may be able to produce something that works very well as a film. And I say to people, you know, I've adapted, you know, very famous novels, Evelyn Waugh, um, Mario Vargas Llosa, uh, etc. And I say to people, please don't compare the film to the novel. Just say to yourself, did I enjoy this film? And if the answer is yes, then I've succeeded. The, the, the kind of version that the film was based on is in a way irrelevant. And I always quote Vladimir Nabokov at this instance because Nabokov did not like Stanley Kubrick's adaptation of Lolita. And Nabokov wrote a script, Kubrick rejected it, Kubrick rewrote it. And Nabokov obviously didn't want it to be a flop, uh, but when he came to assess it, he said, Stanley Kubrick's uh, film is a vivacious variant of my novel. And that was faint praise that was meant to damn uh, Kubrick's film. But actually, I think it's very true because film is, should be a vivacious variant, uh, not a, a, a sort of dogged reproduction. And, um, and that's what I always try to do. I try to play to the strengths of the medium to allow uh, film to function as best as it can. And I also feel that's why most scripts should be original scripts written for the medium rather than adaptations. But I would say three out of every four films are adaptations. A film feeds off texts and to, in a way, to the detriment of film to a certain extent. Because if you write an original script, um, as I did for my film, The Trench, um, nothing in it, in a way, fights against filmmaking and, and, and the strength of, of the medium. It's a rule of the podcast that we always ask guests about money and how it relates to their writing lives. So, you know, be as, be as candid or as, or as guarded as you wish with this, but perhaps following from what you were saying about film, how does the, your income divide between the film work you do and, and the novels? And was that something that you, you deliberately pushed strategically or was it just how it, how it evolved? No, I always wanted to write films, you know, write from, and I, I was very lucky that very early on in my career, I wrote one of the very first films on four um, in 1982. And I always wanted it initially to have it as a kind of, you know, something that I loved and wanted to be part of. But it became apparent to me that actually writing films was a way of uh, freeing me as a novelist in the sense that I had another source of income and I could subsidize my novel writing by my film writing and, and vice versa. Um, 
I, for, for almost all of my writing career, I never sold a novel in advance. I would, I would write it and then sell it. Um, and most novelists don't do that. Most novelists sell their novels or sell three novels in advance because it provides them with an income over you know, six years or something like that. You get so these tr tranches of money arriving. Um, but I, for some reason, I didn't want to do that. I wanted to, if I wanted to take 10 years to write a novel, I wanted to, to take those 10 years, but how would I live? And so that's why I had, had this kind of parallel career as a screenwriter, which is you know, pretty much you know, started, you know, as I say, a year or so after my first novel was published. So I've always had that uh, safety net and that source of income. And, um, you know, I've written lots of films that haven't been made. Um, and I, in the 1990s, I was going to Los Angeles two or three times a year. I, you know, I had three films made in, in, in Hollywood. Um, but I, there were other scripts I wrote which weren't made, but, you know, I was well remunerated. And so that allowed, allowed me to, allowed me the freedom to write my novels without selling them in advance. And that was, for me, that was the, the main reason for doing it. And, um, you know, my novels uh, sell extremely well. They're translated into, you know, dozens of languages. So I, when I write a novel, it's sold you know, many times over. And all my books are in print in the UK, US, France, Germany, Spain, etc. So I, so I have, there's a revenue stream, if you like, from my novel writing. And every time I write a new novel, I get paid in advance for it. But at the same time, I, as, a, as an individual, as somebody who has to you know, pay the rent and, and live, I'm not entirely dependent on that income because I have another source, which is um, my film writing. So it's, it, was a, it was a calculation, and, uh, but it was, it was not a, a, a venal one. It was something I wanted to do, but actually it's, it's panned out really well for my writing career. Um, and I, uh, you know, often my, my contemporaries, my fellow novelists who only write novels say to me, how do I get into this screenwriting lark? As if somehow it's a, you know, a river of money that you can just tap into. Um, and I say, well, just write a screenplay, you know, for nothing, write it on spec and, and see how, how you go. I write lots of screenplays on spec and um, uh, you can empower yourself as a screenwriter. Um, so it's a, it, but, you know, it's, it's something I initially wanted to do, but then fairly swiftly saw how useful it was for me to, as it were, keep the show on the road. And, and you know, it, this, it's, uh, it's a problem. If it takes you two or three years to write a novel and you haven't sold it, how do you live? You know, how do you, how do you exist? How do you pay your bills? And so you need another source of income. Other writers teach creative writing, other writers write um, biographies, um, but I thought the best thing to do for me to enable me to live like this was to, to write films. And, but of course, it's, I'm, I've been very lucky. I've had, a, I've had 20 films made for my screenplays um, uh, and um, the luck factor is in a way much more prevalent in the in the movie business than it is in the novel writing business um, and um, I'm very aware of that but you know I have many irons in the fire I have lots of projects on the go 
I have lots of setbacks, but then I have lots of successes as well. So it's, it's, it's a, it is a kind of career choice in a way, but I, I actually enjoy writing films. I enjoy the experience of collaboration. And you know, many of my friends, I probably have more friends who are actors and film directors and producers than they are novelists. So it's very, very significant part of my life. Uh, when you were writing screenplays and when you were starting out, did you, um, how did you learn the craft? Did it, was it just by doing it? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's again, you can, now you can do endless courses, but at the time um, it, it was a kind of on the job learning experience. But what I did uh, quite early on, films I liked, films I really liked that were in my, you know, in my top 10 or my top 20, I would try to get the screenplay of that film. And I would sort of open this, you know, put the put the VHS in the in the machine and watch the film, stop it, start it, see how see how the writing conformed to the image. And actually, it's 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 not difficult if you if if you're you know smart um, to see how a script a script works. And um, I mean, I've directed a, a feature film, and I've never been to film school. Um, uh, how, how could I just rock up on day one of principal photography and say, put the camera there and we'll start with a close shot and then dolly back to a, you know, a wide shot or whatever. Um, you just learn the, the, you know, the fairly element, elementary grammar of the art form and apply it. It is, it, I mean, Screenwriting is a, you know, again, a change of mental gears. You know, it's not about good writing. Um, it's uh, it's usually very pithy. Um, you know, it's show not tell. All that, all these simple injunctions apply. But it's it's not, it, uh, or you know, I, it wasn't hard for me to learn how to do it. And the first screenplay I wrote was this Channel Four film called Good and Bad at Games. Um, and once you've done one, you kind of break the catch 22. And very quickly, I wrote another two or three films and was commissioned to write others. Um, and you, you can learn, I think, very quickly how to do it. But the way I learned was watch a film you like with the screenplay on your lap and, you know, use your brain. <laughs> I wanted to ask about Trio in a moment, but just what you said prompted another question, which is, I think it's in the New Confessions. Don't you have a line that the whole sort of vocabulary of cinema is work, was worked out really, really early on? All of the shots, all of the sort of methodology was, was sort of sorted by the 20s or the 30s. Am I, am I misremembering that? You're, you're absolutely right. I know I, I, my people that often ask me, say, the fact that you write lots of films, and you does that influence your novel writing? And I will say not at all, because this, this reason, because I think that the film is a simpler form of telling a story than a novel. But the fact is that all the devices, and this is where I think what you're picking up, is all the devices that exist in, in cinema were present in the novel long before cinema was invented. I mean, slow motion, parallel action, you know, cross cutting, jump cuts, uh, flashback, you know, uh, huge close-ups, uh, et cetera, et cetera. You find them in Madame Bovary, you know. And um, so in a way, the, the traffic, if it exists, is from the novel to the film because um, 
these are narrative devices that novelists had worked out for themselves long before the Lumiere brothers you know, cranked up their first camera. And so um, in a way, it's the, the thing for me, the thing that film does, you know, better than the novel is, is you know, mise en scène, you know, it, it's, it sets the scene effortlessly and brilliantly. Um, it might take you a couple of pages of a novel, but you can, in one second of a film, you've, you've got a, a location and its atmosphere and, and, and so on. But um, the narrative devices are, in a way, um, all novelistic devices. Uh, and you can find the same types of uh, cinematic narration in novels of the you know 19th century so it's um it, it, it didn't in, didn't really invent anything you know um it uh, it's photography you know uh, that's what makes it different but in terms of narration uh, the novelists were there long beforehand i wondered if we could track back a little bit before we go to trio and talk about solo your um james bond novel I was particularly interested to see your interview with James Bond in The Guardian, and I wondered whether that was a method that you used while you were writing to sort of get into characters' heads. Well, um, the, the thing about the, the Bond novel, which is, was a commission, you know, it comes out of the blue, you're, you're rung up one day saying, would you, would you like to write a continuation novel? And I, I'd written two spy novels by this time, and I'd also written a lot about Ian Fleming, who sort of fascinates me as a certain type of Englishman and a certain type of writer. And maybe that's why the, the Fleming estate asked me to write the Bond novel. Um, but uh, I, I got, I decided that my novel would be a portrait of, of James Bond. Uh, and it's unusual in the Fleming canon because the, the point of view is totally restricted to Bond. You only see the world of Solo through his eyes. And I reread everything Fleming had written, all, all the novels, all the short stories and, and took notes. And so, um, uh, in a way, my sort of pseudo interview with him was the product of my sort of complete immersion in Bond as a character. Uh, and everything in my novel, which seems odd and unbond like, is actually sourced in Fleming and Fleming's novels. So, you know, Bond was a very nervous flyer. Not many people know that, but Fleming refers to it. You know, Bond was actually a functioning alcoholic uh, when you start counting the number of drinks he has in, in a novel. Um, other things, you know, Bond didn't like uh, women who painted their fingernails because Fleming didn't like women who painted their fingers. So <laughs> all, this, all this stuff that I gathered from my reading uh, went, into, went into, the, into the novel. So uh, you know, in a way, I you know, in in my novel, which is set in 1969, Bond is 45, middle-aged man. So it's I, I say to people, if you if you want to you know get to grips with this mythic literary character, ignore the movies because that's they have nothing to do with in a way with Fleming's uh, novels. Um, then you know, Solo will give you a very good portrait of of this of this individual, and so that. You know, it was, a, it was a bit of a spoof, you know, that Guardian, you know, interview when I, I meet him in the, in, in, on the King's Road in a cafe and things like that. But um, it's, 
it's an, very, an area which was sort of down on its luck at that point. <laughs> but, you, but you know, Bond lived in Wellington Square, according to Ian Fleming. He lived in Chelsea uh, in the fifties and the sixties, and and Chelsea in, in that era was a very uh, working class district with a few rich pockets. And um, uh, so there's a lot of uh, interest, intriguing sociological stuff around Bond, and I think that's what I. I was trying to bring out in, in, in the novel, you know, in a kind of subtext and also in, in the, the various things I wrote about him afterwards. Could we talk uh, about Trio now, but maybe in the context of um, narrative storytelling and, and story and characters and your, your kind of defense of that in, in the face of differing ideas about what literary fiction should be? Well, I think, you know, I, my great comparison is I'm a realistic novelist, you know, and and then the, the great broad river of the realistic novel has been flowing since, you know, Henry Fielding and uh, uh, and it and will flow on. And I always my comparison, which I think illuminates this, the, the situation very well, is between in the world of art, between the, the tradition of figuration and abstraction on conceptual art. Of course, uh, modern art has, has gone in its various directions, but you know, the, the figuration is still the dominant tradition. And, and I, as I think the realistic novel is still the dominant tradition. I mean, if you look at the great British painters of the last you know, 50 years, Lucian Freud, Francis Bacon, David Hockney, Frank Auerbach, you know, uh, et cetera, et cetera, are all essentially figurative painters. Um, Hockney is painting a series of landscapes at the moment, and Freud ended his career painting portraits, you know, classical portraits. Uh, and so I think that nobody says, oh, you, in, in, in these days of ours, you can't possibly be a figurative painter. Of course you can. Just similarly, the novel has its various offshoots and experimental fringes and so on and so forth. But the, the broad tradition of the novel is a, is, is a realistic one because it is the best art form for portraying the human condition. It is without doubt uh, in, its, in the way it's evolved and the way it's, elabor it's, uh, it's elaborated, it deals with human lives and individuals better than the theatre better than film, television. It, it's it's almost tailor-made to explain ourselves to each other. And the realistic novel, I think, has always done that and will always do it. And it will never go away in the same way that figuration will never go. People will still be painting still lives and portraits and landscapes long after, you know, your video conceptual, you know, uh, module has disappeared from the <laughs> the pantheon uh, so it's uh it's just a choice you know um, and again it's a it's a wonderfully liberating art form you can do anything with it um, i've experimented with my fictions you know, my novel sweet caress has 73 photographs in it um, my new novel that i'm planning now will have a few surprises um, but it, essentially they are realistic and I, I want, I, I don't like fantasy, I don't like magic realism, I like my fiction that I read to be rooted in the lives of real people and you know that's the kind of novel I, I will write, you know, um, 
however you know much I might tweak the form, they're fundamentally about real people in in real worlds. And um, uh, but it's I don't need, don't need to apologise for it. And I think especially if you if you think of the the, the comparison with the world of art, you 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 say how ridiculous to say nobody can paint figuratively anymore. Um, so it's uh, it's it's the dominant tradition, and it does a does a brilliant job of explaining ourselves to each other. Uh, I have this other little affair. If you want to know how what makes people tick in a good way or a bad way, read a novel. Um, people are mysterious, but in the world of art, in the world of fiction, that that mysteriousness disappears and you can access their inner lives and see what they're thinking and dreaming and fantasizing about, et cetera, et cetera. And so it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful tool, it's a wonderful portal to understand um, this strange adventure that we're all, we're all on. Well, that seems a, a lovely note to end on. We've reached the end of our time, which has flown by. Thank you so much for your time, Will, and good luck with the next novel, which I look forward to the surprises. October, October next year with a bit of luck. Um, so anyway, thanks, Rachel. Thanks, Simon. Very nice talking to you. Enjoyed it a lot. That was the Always Take Notes interview with William Boyd. His latest novel, Trio, is published by Viking. Hello, it's us again. Uh, Rachel, what was your take on the interview with William? I love talking to William, who is such a generous and open guest. I think I really enjoyed the fact that he balances the screenwriting and the novel writing, and, and he spoke so um, informatively about how those two processes differ and how they can inform each other. Um, how about you? He's been a bit of an inspiration of yours for some time. Yeah, he has. I, I had to sort of rein in my fanboy tendencies. Um, yeah, I mean, I I read A Good Man in Africa years ago when I when I worked in Africa, and I read a lot of the other books, I think, as, as teenagers or when I was in my early 20s. So I was um, really excited to speak to him as well. But I think, yeah, clearly, my sense is he's just a, just a real pro, right? Like how he balances his different professional commitments, like, as you say, the screenwriting and um, the uh, the novel writing, but also, yeah, just a very, very generous and, and gracious man. So a bit of a, bit of a kind of inspiration of how to be, I think. Um, anyway, this has been Always Take Notes, hosted by me, Simon Aikam. And me, Rachel Lloyd. Our producer and social media editor is Artemis Irvin. Our graphic design is by James Edgar and our score is by Jess Danheiser. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Always Take Notes, on Twitter at Take Notes Always. If you'd like to support us on our crowdfunding page on Patreon, we're on there as Always Take Notes. And if you'd like to leave a review on iTunes or get in touch with us via our website, please do. Many thanks. Goodbye. Thank you.